Hello, and welcome to the Business of Information Security Podcast with me, Gareth Becker. In this podcast, we chat to senior cybersecurity executives from a range of industries about their passions, experiences, and challenges. Without further ado, let's go ahead and dive straight into today's episode. Welcome to the Business of InfoSec podcast. Today, I'm joined by Jonathan Craven, who is the Privacy and Compliance Lead at digital healthcare company, iRhythm Technologies. Jonathan has a wealth of experience in information governments. Uh, He has worked extensively in the public sector, including for the NHS, in local government, and uh, on behalf of the police. In addition to that, Jonathan has a master's degree in experimental psychology from the University of Cambridge, and that actually leads into the subject of uh, today's podcast, which is all about the effect of people on cybersecurity posture and how we can effectively uh, encourage them to do what we need them to do. So welcome to the podcast, Jonathan. Thanks, Gareth. It's lovely to be here. And I know from our previous conversation that you are passionate about people and the role that they play in uh, cybersecurity posture. As I discussed, you do have a background in psychology and from a psychological point of view. So I wanted to ask you what your take is on people and why they're such an important part of an organization's security posture. Um, I I think historically that um, lots of organizations have always looked for a bit of a silver bullet in terms of meeting almost any kind of regulatory compliance need, be it IT, cybersecurity, governance or legislation requirements, um, because it's often seen as an administrative bolt-on to whatever your day job is. And I think the problem with that has meant that it tends to be, people tend to focus on tools as solutions um, and, 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 or, and processes as solutions, rather than actually saying, how do we make these tools and processes work? And the answer to that question in most organizations is going to be, we have to have people who are going to use them and operate them and um, employ them properly. Um, So I'm always very, very sort of interested in how organizations approach that. Um, And I think very much coming from my background, I mean, as you you alluded to in your introduction, is that I come from a psychological perspective, um, which I think is if not unique, is certainly very unusual in the field that we're talking about in cybersecurity and privacy. Because I think that from my experience, many of my colleagues come from either an IT background or a legal background, and therefore they have a very, very particular slant on how they feel that these, that cybersecurity and privacy and data protection um, consideration should be enacted in organizations and I think I come from a slightly different perspective with looking at it from more psychological and I go back to very very some of my very very early days in academia and and even when I was a small child my parents used to say that the, the question that was always on my lips was why and I think that's very much feeds it right the way through my career to date is to say why do people do what they do and I know that sounds like a very simplistic sort of generalization but actually in terms of data in terms of sort of like data protection and cybersecurity, i think what's key here is why do people do stuff that we don't want them to do um and and how do we make them change those behaviors um so i think that's how it feeds very much into sort of my 
my background, but also my my interests in in how we can we can enact those changes in organisations. Yeah, absolutely. So before we dive into some of those themes, let me re- rewind a, a little bit and just ask uh, you directly a little bit more about yourself because. You do. You had this uh, background in psychology. Certainly, that's what you studied uh, a lot during your time at, at university. Uh, I, I was. I was interested. Uh, were you interested in going into the police uh, yourself at any time? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I. I did a. It, it's quite strange, really, in, in that I, for a very long time, I was trying to be a psychologist. I, I really, really wanted to be a psychologist, and, and obviously went to university and studied that, and and did some of my very early roles in the NHS were working in a, in a psychological capacity in a practitioner capacity but um, I think I I got frustrated a little bit sometimes with, with a little bit of the bottleneck in, in terms of um, pra- sort of like qualifying to become a chartered practitioner and as a result I moved sort of away from pure psychology if that's the right way of putting it and into more governance kind of roles and compliance roles and I think that moving sideways and up and sideways and up and sideways and up I, I, I've ended up being more squarely in the field of data of, as I said data protection and privacy compliance um, but certainly my drive for a long time w- was as I said to, to work in in some psycho- psychological capacity but actually I think upon reflection much of what I do now, I think, could be broadly described as applied psychology. So in a strange way, I've almost come full circle in that, in that I, I started off wanting to do it in what I suppose was a very traditional uh, sense of uh, psychology practice, practice. But actually, I've ended up in a situation where I'm doing, I'm doing something which is a more pragmatic application of psychological principles. Yeah, absolutely. So just uh, to talk about that a, a little bit, I'm, I'm interested to ask you how, you know, your background in psychology and kind of the human angle um, gives you a different perspective on, on the way that, you know, as we as people interact with uh, cybersecurity policy and cybersecurity, uh, you know, behaviours around uh, sort of cybersecure behaviours, I guess I should say. So how does your experience with psychology, you know, play into the, the practical work you do as a CISO? Um, I think it goes back to the, the, the answer I gave a little bit ago, which is about why. Why do people do what they do? And, and that is a broad psychological question, which is which has baffled greater minds than mine for, for time immemorial. But I think specifically in relation to cybersecurity, I think I've had innumerable conversations with colleagues, both within my own organisations and others, who wrestle with this problem on a daily basis of of when you present your organisation and specifically the people within your organisation with a set of compliance requirements and indeed in, in many cases compliance tools which should support them to do it that they still engage in non-compliant behaviours. Um, and I think it's that, that fundamental question there of, of why is that the case? And, and it almost feels like a, sometimes, I, I, I sympathise with a lot of colleagues in cybersecurity because it feels like you're pushing a rock uphill, is, is that actually sometimes it almost feels like the staff, your colleagues are working against you and you don't really know why. 
So I suppose from my perspective, I I try and strip away a lot of the the, the traditional um, um, sort of um, comfortable positions to take, which is from say from an IT background, we need better tools, we need better IT infrastructure, we need a better firewall, we need it, going at it for very much from a hardware and software approach and likewise from a legal perspective a compliance perspective looking at it and saying if we just had better policies and processes everything would work better but again i think we're just missing the fundamental variable in both of those in the success of both of those approaches is if we can't get people to do them then to either to use the tools or to employ the processes and, and follow the policies then we're wasting our time and i think that's my. That's why it affects how I how I operate because I work very much. I think from a perspective of saying, okay, let's go back to two very very simple principles. First and first and foremost, understand what the basic business need in each of the different areas of a business. What is the business need there? What what function are they trying to perform? And then looking at that through the lens of privacy, data protection, cybersecurity, and saying, how do we enable that business need in a compliant manner and and i think that's uh, from answering those two fundamental questions gives me a much better understanding of not only what does the business need to do but how we're going to facilitate that yeah absolutely and so when you're uh, you know say rolling out a new policy or if you're because you mentioned that um you know you can sometimes feel um, or perhaps CISOs can sometimes feel that, you know, their staff or their colleagues are kind of working against them and not, not yep. doing what, um, what they're being asked to do. So, I mean, what do you think is the best way to actually get people to, to, to do those things? Or perhaps when you're pre presenting them with the information uh, and the, the procedures and so forth, how do you actually get them on board? What's the best way? Um, I, I think in a, on a very basic level it's it's actually having having those having those types of conversations with the different areas of a business as a dialogue rather than a monologue so very much coming from a perspective of not being very prescriptive not saying you must do this you must do that you must do the other because obviously we do have to have those fallback positions of, of, of policy compliance and things like that. So I'm not, I'm not saying we, we shouldn't have that. But I think it goes back to the point I made about understanding a business need and what each business function needs to do. Because I think, I've, again, I, I've observed this a lot over time, is that historically, cybersecurity teams, privacy and data protection teams are seen as obstacles. They are seen as blockers to progress. They are seen as blockers to development and, and um, innovation. Uh, and, and actually, I want to very much reframe that conversation into, no, what we're doing is we're actually facilitators, we're enablers. But when, what we're doing is we're, we're adding a layer of security around what it is that you want to do and enabling you to do that in a compliant way, in a secure way. And I think that's in re reframing that conversation that that can help uh, cybersecurity professionals like in, in my kind of situation to to understand what it is their business is trying to do, because I think that's that's often 
um, a major failing in, in, in cybersecurity approaches is that the IT professionals working within an organization know what that organization needs to be doing. But if you don't communicate that, and particularly if you don't communicate the why it's important to the rest of the business, the rest of the business, bluntly, doesn't give two hoots about it. They don't care. And I think that's the, that's the fundamental hurdle we have to clear as cybersecurity and privacy professionals, is actually saying, how do we make this relevant to everybody? How do we make this pertinent to everybody else in the organization, not just us? Because I know how many pieces of data protection legislation there are in, in just in UK law, let alone EU law or, or global law. And I don't have any expectation that the vast majority of my colleagues will know anything about the content of that. Yet we as a business have responsibilities to, to make sure we comply with the relevant parts of those le pieces of legislation. And I think it's it's incumbent on cybersecurity and privacy professionals like myself to be the conduit, to be the, the interpreter, if you will, of that legislation into a business, a practical business context to say, okay, how do we, on the one hand, make sure that the various business functions are able to do what they want to do and need to do, but also on the flip side, how do we make sure that the organization remains compliant? And I think it's that balance that needs to be struck. And that can only be struck through a dialogue between the business areas and the cybersecurity and privacy functions. It can't be, it can't be achieved if it's very, very dictatorial. Mm, yeah, no, I think I think that's a great point. And um so you've worked in some very large and uh, prominent organizations like the National Health Service in the UK and the police service. In your experience, What's the best way to educate and empower staff about security priorities in the context of a very large organization or a large company, you know, like uh, like those organizations that you've worked for in the past? Um, I, I think that there are two there are two key factors in 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 sort of a, a, a healthy and, and successful program of awareness raising and education. And this is not just to do with cybersecurity, but obviously for the purpose of the conversation, it's relevant. Um, I think first and foremost, um, there's, there's been a lot of research over recent years that one-off or very irregular, heavy-duty sort of inputs of, of, of education are only, only have very limited success. So, for example, your annual information security training refresher is not going to work that well it's not going to stick and it's particularly not going to stick if it's the same powerpoint every 12 months that you put every member of staff through and you have the same quiz at the end of it that people by the second or third time they do it they know the answers whether they're actually paying attention to them or not because it's a multiple choice thing so i think that there is first and foremost there is a need to move away from that as, as an approach, and more towards what I would probably describe as a drip feed, which is um, little and often, and in some cases, very little, but very often. Um, and I have seen a number of vendors over the last year or two who, who, have, who have started to produce um, cybersecurity and compliance 
um, software tools, which are operating almost as an overlay on uh, your your staff um, desktop. Be it, be it, and obviously it, this this can work particularly well if you, the vast majority of your staff are remote working, as as many organisations are now, and that it will constantly nudge you with little hints, tips, pieces of information that are relevant to cybersecurity and data protection without it being a, a piece of two by four to the back of, back of the head. It's actually, this is very, very gentle reinforcement. And there I go back to a very, very simple psychological principle of positive reinforcement is that we are is, is that you're slowly acclimatizing and conditioning staff to behaving in a more compliant way, but having a much better awareness and understanding of the reasons why. And I think that's the second key point is the frequency of the training and the amount of information you're trying to get people to digest. But secondly, making it relevant. How do you make it relevant to individuals within your organization? Because I've come across in in uh, in a number of settings where your where the organization's approach to data data protection um, training or cybersecurity training is to tell people about the legislation and in my humble opinion that's a complete waste of time simply because they don't know it, it isn't relevant to them and they can't relate to it and that doesn't mean, again, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't tell them about it at all, but there's no point spending half an hour telling somebody. So from my perspective, when I was working in the NHS, um, a consultant um, physician is not that bothered about the nuance of every recital of the general data protection regulation for it for sake of argument. What they are interested in is what does that mean to them? How do they have to change their daily practices to make sure that they are operating in a compliant manner? What can they do and what are they precluded from doing? And I think that's again goes back to my point about cybersecurity teams, data protection teams being the interpreter of legislation for the rest of the business. And that's very much comes out, stems out from those conversations with the business functions to say, right, what is it that you need to do? Okay, what part of the data protection legislation relates to what it is that you want to do? And how does it affect what you are doing as a daily business process? And I think it's when you get to that point of education and awareness raising, so you have the drip feed, which is generally slowly raising everybody's level of awareness and understanding about data protection, cybersecurity, privacy generally, but also what you're doing is making sure that your inputs to various business functions are targeted so that they are relevant and, and given sort of um, pertinent examples and timely examples. Um, a, good, a good example I use from this is actually if you have a, a good healthy data breach reporting um, process within your organization, go and speak to a business function about any data breaches they've reported in the last six months and say, what went wrong? What can you do to, what can, can you do to change it? How can we support you in doing that? So there is a kind of audit cycle there. Um, so yeah, I think it's those two things really that, as I said, sort of the general awareness raising and frequency of training, but also making the training more pertinent. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. And 
and definitely bringing that information into the day-to-day and almost the moment-to-moment of what people are doing really, I think, would make them think about behavior and and really, you know, how they're involved in everything uh, from a security point of view on an ongoing basis. And also finding that personal angle, you know, what how, how people relate to what they're actually doing. Um, so have you found it to be any, uh, any different, you know, now you're working in the private sector. Um, I was wondering about the comparison in terms of working with people from those very large organizations into a kind of, um, uh, or, you know, public sector organizations into a private sector organization. Have you found any uh, differences there? Um, yes, but not necessarily the ones that I think I expected to find. Um, I think, by and large, obviously, compliance with legislation is a requirement for, for most organizations, regardless of, of, of public or private sector status. So that's by and large the same. Um, I am mindful of the fact that I, having, having left the NHS, is that there is a whole additional layer of compliance requirements that NHS organizations have that, that non-NHS organizations don't have. Um, so I think that there is an additional layer of complexity there um, for a lot of public um, public sector organisations. Obviously, the biggest specific difference I'd say is probably freedom of information um, legislation, which public bodies are um, subject to, but but private sector bodies aren't. So that's a that's an additional burden. Um, I think the other thing which which is probably doesn't come as, as too much of a surprise, but is but is obviously the amount of budget available to deal with these issues is um, distinctly different in the private sector to the public sector. And that is, I very, very much hasten to add, that is not because a lack of will on the part of the public sector organisations, that is simply just because they have a limited pot of money to pull from. And <laughs> given what their core business is, um, in the NHS, looking after patients in, in, in local authority, it will be um, social care or, or, or whatever, then, then you're, they have to prioritise and therefore, unfortunately, sometimes things like IT infrastructure, cybersecurity, data protection drops lower down the priority list than I personally would like it to, but I understand why it does. Um, and I think as a result, the other thing that I notice as a distinction is the pace of change. Um, I would, I mean, I think it's interesting what's happened over the last sort of like 18 to 20 months in the NHS, because I I joined uh, my, my last role in the NHS in uh, November 2019. So four or five months before covid emerged um and and obviously spent the vast majority of the last uh, of the last two years working in an nh trust nhs trust in london that was grappling not only with business as usual and all of the normal compliance requirements but trying to deal with a pandemic response as well um and i think as a result of that i saw almost unprecedented levels of investment and change in the NHS. And I know I've spoken to other colleagues who've worked across the NHS over the last couple of years and indeed longer. 
and they all tend to say the same thing. However, I think what is going to be really key for those organisations, be it NHS or local authority, is I don't think that level of investment is going to be sustainable for them. So there now has to be a new approach, which is we can't just, they can't just throw money at a problem. They have to now think about how they can stage any further work that needs to, to, to be done, how they can target investment to the right areas, how they can bolster what they've achieved so far and build on it for future. Whereas I think organizations in the private sector have a little bit more leeway because I think if they realize there is a, to coin a phrase, a clear and present danger, then they will, they will more likely have a more um, speedy response to that because they realize that there is a significant commercial risk if they don't address those issues, uh, if not immediately, certainly within the very, very near future. So I suppose it's that difference in approach that's born out of necessity between the public sector and the private sector that's, that's the main difference. But strangely, um, most, of the, most of the issues that the organisations fa face are the same regardless of the, the environment. Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, they're basically facing the same kind of risks and many of the similar challenges, but just a very different uh, way to respond and different things going on under the surface. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you a little bit about how your background in um, psychology affects other areas of uh, the work you do in cybersecurity. And one of the things that, um, that came to mind for me was that a lot of attacks these days are almost more psychological in nature, especially when you think about things like social engineering attacks and that kind of thing. And, you know, cause a lot of it is around trickery about uh, subterfuge or deception. So I was wondering how um, your background in psychology informs the way that you think about that and perhaps the way that you train or talk to your staff about, uh, about those kind of risks. Um, it's it's absolutely pertinent um and certainly as you say um although i i still think that the the vast majority uh, of attacks are um historically have been of a more uh, direct nature i think certainly the trend is going in the direction of more social engineering um and certainly talking to a lot of colleagues recently that is the thing that they are gearing up to deal more with um i think to place it into some kind of context um i, I read a report by kaspersky that they'd written i think two or three years ago where they'd they'd gone to something like i think it was over a thousand different top tech companies and said what do you consider to be your single biggest it security risk and they all said uh, sorry, not all of them, Fifth, more than 50% of them said, ask that. So this is not a new problem. And I think there are two parts to it. I think the first part of it is to, is to address the human error issue, um, which is people just getting stuff wrong, either because they're in a rush or because they don't quite know what the process is or they're doing something um, that they're not quite 
they're not quite sure of, uh, of what they're doing. They haven't had quite the right training. So I think there is a lot of a, a lot of error and cybersecurity risk that can be attributed to to poor practice, if if I'm blunt, I suppose. Um, but and and certainly, I know that that data breach reporting statistics from the Information Commissioner's Office um, over the last two or three years have all borne that out. There's a reasonably consistent kind of I think it's about two thirds of the of the, the reportable data breaches to the ICO are broadly attributed to human error. Um, so I think that the that it seems that there is an ongoing issue with that, and I think that particularly when you look at how attacks are being more targeted now through social engineering, through phishing. Um, I think that it's never been more important to have those kind of very, very frank conversations with staff about what they're doing, um, but also making sure that we can put the right tools in place to support them to make sure that they don't do things by accident wrong. So, for example, using um, email tools which will have um, data loss prevention functionality in it. So literally very, very simple stuff like you are sending this email outside the organization. Are you sure you want to do that? That kind of thing. Um, just to, to place those additional checks and balances in. But I think a broader conversation with staff now has to be about where social engineers are gaining that information from. And I think there is probably, this is probably one of the last big myths about, about cybersecurity um, and, and hacking, if you will, is that there is, there is still the wonderful Hollywood version of the, the, the guy in a hoodie hunt, hunched over a, a, a laptop with lots of green code squiggling about all over the place, and that's a hacker. Um, when, in fact, what a lot of these people are doing are now is, is they're scraping social media profiles, they're looking for information about people which they are freely volunteering to the wider world, um, um, that they can use um, often for things like passwords because people tend to use things uh, in spite of our best efforts to the contrary, they tend to use things which are usually fairly breakable. Um, and I think it's I think it's when you start to socialize those kind of ideas with with people who work outside of cybersecurity that actually, People are watching. People are paying attention. And if and if you work for a particular organisation that has particular vulnerability around these things, then you do have to be very, very careful about what information you give and to whom. And that's not just. And the irony of it is now it goes beyond. Um, I think historically it probably would have been well, you don't give your bank details to anybody, just anybody over the phone kind of approach. But actually now. Um, I saw, a, I saw a wonderful piece done on, uh, Amer on American TV news, I think it was last year, where they just uh, basically were doing a lot of uh, interviews to, with people in the street about cybersecurity. And they said, so their first question was, will you tell me what your, your most popular computer password is? And he said, well, no, of course I won't. And they say, okay, can you tell us how you construct it? And then, for example, somebody would say, okay, well, I use my my pet's name and my year of birth. And you go, okay, fine. And then they would then go on to do another five, a further 
set of 10 or a dozen questions during which they would ask, where do you live? What high school do you go to? Oh, well, you, are you, you've left high school. Oh, does that mean you're so-and-so age? So they ask their age and then they say, oh, well, what birth, uh, sort of like what star sign are you? So they get their birth month and then they say, oh, well, you're, you're, so you're from, you were born in, you were born in 1990 or 1991. Oh, 1991. Okay, fine. Um, oh yeah. So what was your first, what was your first uh, house? Where was it? What was your first pet? Have you got any pets now? Oh, you've got a dog. What's your dog's name? And over the course of the interview, they elicited the password information, having asked the person right at the start of the interview to give them their password and they wouldn't. And I think it's that process of saying this is very, very simple information that you are quite happily giving away that you don't realize what it's being used for. Now, I don't want to get too sort of like 1984 and Big Brother on it, but actually I think people having a much more um, frank assessment of their own sort of like cybersecurity health is is a good thing and i don't and obviously i look at this from an organizational standpoint but i think this is actually just from people personally looking at themselves and saying do i do i behave in a healthy and secure way online um and if you can get that replicated in a in a, a work environment then i think that's almost kind of i don't know if it's quite the holy grail for cybersecurity professionals but it surely can't be far away yes absolutely and i think that the interplay between our, um, our online activities inside and outside of work then become so relevant, especially when people are looking at individual employees, potentially profiling them or scraping their social media profiles and so forth. Do you think you would then recommend a, a kind of, um, you know, CISOs to take that approach or almost training staff to, um, to assess their whole, um, online presence or the whole security posture personally, both inside and outside of work? I think it's, as I said earlier, I think it's hard because, because you can't place the whole sort of cyber security resilience responsibility onto each and every member of staff because it's not going to work. But that said, I think this is this goes back to the point I raised about education and awareness raising. I think there is there is absolutely no harm, and indeed, I think there's a lot of good in generally raising everybody's sense of awareness about these kind of threats, that they are pretty much ever present, and that if anything, they are only going to become more so. Therefore, if you have a healthier cybersecurity approach in your personal life then it will naturally follow suit that you'll do that at work too. I think the, the flip side of that, I think from CISO's perspective, is that, that, and particularly given the fact that I think the way that the world is working right now with, the, with a significant proportion of, of, of workers being remote and a, a significant proportion of those may also be working on their own devices, is that there has to be a revision of what I think a lot of CISOs would look at as their threat surface area. Uh, and, and it suddenly increased almost exponentially from we have 100% of our staff working in a, an office environment that we control the premises, we control the devices 24-7 to most of our staff are now working remotely. They may be working on managed devices, but some of them aren't. And we have to consider that they are using those unmanaged devices for their personal business as well. 
and how do we bridge that security gap such as it is to make sure that we're not the threat level isn't increased beyond our our, our risk appetite so it's a it's a very delicate balance um and honestly i don't think there is one simple solution to it i think it's partly the responsibility of of CSOs and cybersecurity teams and data protection teams to look at what they are doing within the organization to educate and raise awareness across the organization. But I do believe that there is a, a degree of individual responsibility on, on staff to, to have that kind of, because, because, I, because I think people, people understand when you say to them about protecting themselves online and protecting their families and their children online they get that 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 isn't that isn't sort of we're not talking greek to them when when we're having those kind of conversations they're not going to give their bank account details to some john smith on the phone that they've never heard of from before so i think we have to almost join the dots for them and say okay this applies to your working life too um and if you are Let's let's face it. We are operating now in a a vastly different working environment to the one we were in two years ago, and 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 historically prior to that. In that people have not only did that they have hybrid working in terms of whether they're home working from home or working in the office, but they have hybrid working in terms of now you'll have people with much more flexible working hours. They might work effectively what amounts to a split shift because they work start work very early in the morning then they take stop for a couple of hours and they take the kids to school and then they do a bit more work and then they go and pick the kids up from school and they do some and then they do some more work in the evening and again it means they're constantly flipping between personal life and work life and personal life and work life and i think as a, that there has to be an appreciation of that, both from the individual themselves, but also from organizations in terms of their, their IT security, because we're saying, well, how do we make sure that what we're doing is secure and what the staff are doing is secure? Um, and it's, as I said, I don't think there is a simple, easy solution to it, but I think there are lots of small steps that we can make towards that as a final goal. Great. Well, that's uh, about all the time that uh, we have for today. So I'd just like to say thank you so much for uh, joining me. It's been a great conversation. And, uh, and yeah, well, I hope to talk to you again sometime. It's been great. Thanks very much, Gareth. We hope you enjoyed that episode of the Business of InfoSec podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you're currently listening to make sure you get our latest episodes. Plus, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a review. As always, you can find us and engage with us on social media, as well as on the Business of InfoSec website, where you can find this podcast, as well as other topical articles, reports, and videos. So, until next time, take care.